This is Robin. Mr. Kane, we're about to begin. I'm a, everybody hates me because I made the terrible mistake of scheduling Eric Roth and Bob Kane at the same time. But when we did the scheduling, uh, we didn't realize that both would have these monumental uh, blockbusters, both uh, opposite each other, and people probably will go from here up there and down from there. I know people are dying to come, like uh, our speaker today, who's so wonderful. Did anybody uh, hear Donald Newlove today? Did you hear not Donald Newlove? Wasn't he great? Well, he's a Batman fan, and he's, he's agonizing because he's up there signing books when he wants to be down here. Anyway, I, we're so pleased to have Bob Kane with or without Batman's resurgence. Now that it's uh, so big, we want to hear how it began. And it began way back in 1939. And I want to present Bob Kane, and we're so glad to have him. Robert. You want to sit or stand? I'm glad I have a few died in the wolf fans that came to see me today, I tell you that. Anyway, stiff competition, Eric Roth is terrific, Forrest Gump, and Batman's doing pretty good right now, number one, so we're both doing well. Anyway, let's see, I guess you'd all like to know how it all began, and I have a long story, I have a few footnotes I wrote, so I won't leave anything out, and uh, we'll have fun. Okay, uh, the other night, funny I remember, so we all have nostalgia for the past. And the other night I saw Bing Crosby retrospect on PBS. And Bing Crosby was an integral part of my early life when I was a poor kid living in the Bronx. Yes, I was, not poverty stricken, but we didn't have a lot of money. My dad lost his job, depression era. And I used to draw listening to Bing Crosby records. Ba-ba-ba-boo! I always feel like I sounded like him in those days. At any rate, I was 13 or so, and I sent Bing, he just had twins in Hollywood. And Hollywood to me was the mecca of a utopian state. I always dreamt about as a kid being in Hollywood. And never in my wildest dreams did I ever think I'd, I'd be in Hollywood as part of a a whole conglomerate and part of the Batman movies. I thought when I started I'd be a cartoonist. Just draw comic books and that would be my vocation for life. Anyway, I, I sent Bing a drawing, autographed to him, a caricature of Bing and his two twins, and I fervently waited day after day for Garcia to deliver a note from Bing because he was my idol. And I get a lot of fans in the world uh, uh, today, and I suppose I'm an idol of many kids, so I can understand my waiting and waiting. And lo and behold, I got a letter from Crosby Enterprises, but it wasn't from Bing. It was a stock form letter from Everett Crosby. And I was very disappointed. So much so, I thought I'd break up all Bing Crosby's records. I won't listen. I'll, I'll listen to Frank Sinatra for me running. At any rate. <laughs> But no, really, you have no idea. And it taught me a valuable lesson, though. There's always a moral to a lot of stories, this nostalgia. Oh, well, when I gave up hope of ever hearing from Bing, I got a letter from Bing Crosby himself. Signed Bing on his stationery, Hollywood. 
and it said, Dear Bob, it looks like you have a lot of talent in this area, and I wish you the best of luck. If you ever get to Hollywood, I guess you just threw that in. Look me up. <laughs> Sign Bing. Good luck. And I was thrilled in getting that letter. You have no idea. And what it did teach me, the moral to this story is that I try to answer most of my fan mail. I get barrels of it at home. They, some comic book dealers apparently have my home address in LA and I just get like hundreds of letters a week piled up all over the house. And I try to answer because I know what it means to the fans I suppose when they fervently ask me for an autograph or a drawing, uh, what it means to me. And it all began with Bing Crosby. So, uh, thank you, Bing, wherever you are. Okay, now I'm, I'm always asked where and how did it all begin. Uh, it begins with a dream, basically. We all have dreams. And uh, my dream was always to be a cartoonist. Now, where does this dream come from? We all have what we call an innate creative potential. Innate creative potential. All people are born with this. And some of us find it in our youth, very young, like I did when I was seven. My wife Elizabeth wanted to be an actress at five. And I think the advantage, it's, in the essence, what it, it means is it's a little voice within you, and it's a message from God who sets the pace for your vacation your vocation, not vacation. That comes later after you're rich. But the point is that when you have, when you hear this calling, you should and follow it. Now some people find it early, some people find it in middle age, and some people never find it, or they may find it in older age. But most people that I've interviewed and spoken to about your inner creative potential, are you happy in doing what you're doing? There are many accountants, the lawyers, the doctors, maybe they want to be an artist or a writer or a cartoonist or a composer, and they did not follow their dream. And what happens, they've made a good living in their alternative vocation, but they never found that inner voice telling them what they really wanted to do. It's unfortunate. Many of you here must be writers, and of course, it's never too late to follow the dream once you know what you really want to do in life. Set your vocational goals and go for it. In fact, Goethe, the famous philosopher, has this to say about success. I made a few footnotes there. Look at that, I wrote some notes and my wife thought I'd be reading this. I'm speaking with the top of my head and she's very happy. Next page. It's been 50 years and I want a lot of anecdotes and I didn't want to leave out too many of them. Okay, here's what Goethe, the famous German author and philosopher, has to say on the subject of becoming a in life. And I quote, Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back. Always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there's one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. The moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. And it's very true. Once you commit yourself, anything can happen out there in the youth. You meet all kinds of people. If you stay in your little womb at home, nobody knows you're living, you've got to get your work out into the world, and you will get rejections as I did. We all do. And I still get rejections. 
At any rate, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And his last words are, begin it now. And I say, begin it yesterday. It's never too late. And so, as we go on, I, I took Goethe's advice, and I committed myself, obviously. And Providence did take a hand, because I was at the right place at the right time, at the beginning of the budding comic book industry in New York, in the mid-30s. And that's another propitious moment in time, being at the right place at the right time, right? It helps. If you're the wrong place at the wrong time, nothing will help, even with a great talent. And it's, uh, I started out drawing little fill-in comics for the new comic books, $5 a page. I wasn't making a windfall at that time, but I was at least on, my on the track of my cartoonist vocation. And then I was sidetracked, lo and behold, as we all are. I needed a job. My dad lost his job. I needed a steady job. I maybe brought in $10, $15 some weeks. Some weeks I didn't get anything from my little fill-in cartoons. And I, my Uncle Sam had a cloak and suit factory in the garment district. The antithesis, I hated this, of what I really wanted to do. But in order to make the $12 a week, which in the depression at that time I, my family needed, I took the job. You have no idea how I loathed the nine or 10 months I worked for Uncle Sam. I worked in a factory. And my job was that all the workers sewing at the sewing machine would sew the clothing inside out and drop it on the floor. And all I had to do was bend down 100 times a day or more and pull it from the inside out to the front and lay it neatly on a, on a table for, for the treadmill to begin uh, the, the, uh, the factory uh, the way they would do it those days. At any rate, I hated that job. And finally, I was looking around on the side, obviously, to continue my cartooning career. And uh, Uncle Sam, <laughs> dear old Uncle Sam, not the tax man, but he was my dear uncle who gave me this dirty job. He would come in to the factory at 11 o'clock precisely every day, not a minute before, a minute after, for his morning call in his secret restroom with the gold key. And he'd walk in with the New York Times <laughs> under his arm, big cigar in his mouth, and as he passed me by, I would say, hi, kid. And 11 o'clock he went in there, did his morning call, day in and day out, well, I used the dirty men's room in the hall. And it was dirty with all the workers, 100 workers. Uh, finally, he called me in one day, he says, kid, I'm going to do you a favor now. You're going to get the gold key to the men's room. And I thought, my God, what a promo and a dollar raise a week, I want you to know. And he was so proud that he thought he was doing me a, really a giant favor. And when I thought of think about it in retrospect, I have to laugh because I said, Uncle Sam, I appreciate your generosity, but I tell you, you know what you can do with the gold key at this moment in time. Uh, you may get hemorrhoids from it, but that's where you can shove it. And I quit, and I looked around. A few weeks later, I got a job at Fleischer Animated Studios in New York doing animation for $25 a week. And that was pretty good in those days. At least I was on the track doing what I really wanted to do to begin with. And so I, uh, 
I, I quit there after 10 months, and then I again pursued my cartooning career and the innovative comic book industry. And I wound up at DC Comics, and I started to do fill-in cartoons for them. The fill-in cartoons, meaning it wasn't a strip yet. They were one-box cartoons, and uh, $5 a page, and I wasn't making a great living. But anyway, a fortuitous moment came to me when Vincent Sullivan, the editor at that time, chief editor, said, Bob, Superman preceded Batman by one year. That started in 1938, and this was 1939, the beginning of 39. He said, you know, Superman is doing great. We'd like you to create another character for us in, the, in that vein, a superhero. And uh, I said, well, how much are they earning a week? There were two artists, Siegel and Schuster. Sit down, it doesn't collapse. Uh, <laughs> they were making $800 a week apiece, and this was in 1938, and I was making $35 a week. I said, for that kind of money, I'll have a superhero for you on Monday, and this was on a, <laughs> and this was on a Friday. <laughs> I said, can I really make $800 a week? He said, well, there were two of them. You may not get the $1,600, but at least you'll get eight. I said, well, he said, maybe not immediately, you know. I said, at least raise me from 5 to $10 a page. It'd be a step in the right direction. And, all right, now here come the influences. We all are influenced by other artists, and no matter what your chosen field is, especially the arts. And when I was 13 years old, I, I was always interested in the beginning of how things began, as you're interested now in hearing how Batman began. I wanted to know about the steam engine, the flying machine, the machine gun, automobiles, airplanes. And I came upon a book by Leonardo da Vinci when I was a kid of 13. And he had all these sketches, innovative sketches, that would become part of our institution 500 years later. He had the machine gun, the, the sewing machine, the, uh, all the things we have today, conveniences. And he had a crude glider it was kind of a sled-like contraption with huge bat wings. And he had a quote. And the quote was so apropos of what I was trying to do, although I didn't know it at the time. And it said, your bird shall have no other wings but that of a bat. And this was Da Vinci's quote. I saw it, and I thought it was a Batman. That's my own perception and visualization. And so I, I had that influence. Uh, Zorro, the dual identity of Zorro. I saw a movie when I was a kid called The Mark of Zorro with Douglas Fairbanks Sr., the most swashbuckling superhero, of the, uh, superhero in the movies of them all. And he had the dual identity. He was fighting, he lived in Southern California about 1888. And there was a big repression by the dictatorship that used to overtax the people, uh, take away their homes if they couldn't meet their taxes, burn their homes. And they were, it was a terrible regime, and he decided, having compassion, to become a crusader. So at night he would don the mask and, and a sword, and he'd come out of a cave on a black horse tornado, shades of Batmobile later on, and these were my great influences. And the last influence was the Bat Whispers. It was a movie with Chester Morris, and the Bat was a villain, but he wore a Bat costume. And uh, 
these are my three major influences, okay? On, and then on Monday, I made a very crude sketch from Da Vinci, the Zorro, the bat, brought it in, and sure enough, he looked at it and he liked it. He says, you're on. And I drew six pages on Batman in 1939, and all I received was $30, $5 a page. So I said, Vincent, where's the $800 a week? He says, Bob, you just started. Give us a chance. Let's see whether it sells or not. The first issue was a seller, complete gone. Uh, a year later, I came to my Vincent and my boss with a character called Robin the Boy Wonder, 1940. And, uh, I said, I have another idea to add to the Batman. And he said, Robin, how old is he? He's about 13 or 14. He says, mothers won't like to watch young children fighting alongside Batman fighting gangsters in New York. He says, leave it out. So I said, Jack, I said, let's try one issue. If you don't like it, we'll get rid of him. Put Robin in the book sold five times what it did with Batman alone. And that's how Batman and Robin began. And at this point, I'd like to tell you how I can draw. <clears throat> and other people maybe not, won't have my perception. See, my gift, my gift is that, and I knew it early in life, is that I don't see, I don't see white paper when I draw. What I see are the images I project in my mind's eye. <clears throat> and if I want to draw a plane or a boat, I get some research on it. But I see the Batman figures, I see Robin, the Joker, and all the characters from my imagination. And what I do is trace it when I project it onto the white paper the movie camera onto the screen and that's why I can draw you could learn to draw but I don't think you learn the gift that God gave me of, of visualizing beforehand that's that's why I I was able to draw and so the plot thickens and we continue and uh, <clears throat> of course you get setbacks there were two movie serials, one in 1943 and 49. And then the book was selling pretty well, but in 1965, my boss said, we're going to kill the Batman, and it's not selling. Television is interfering with sales. And uh, what would I do? I was drawing it now for about 25 years, and I didn't know any other vocation. This is what I wanted to do. and. Uh, that was terrible, and, and I, I really worried about that my plight at that moment in time. But lo and behold, and I am spiritual, a higher force came and saved the day. They decided to do the Batman television series. Da 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 da, -da and that saved me because it became a sensation overnight, as the movies did later. And I was very grateful for that. And. Uh, the Batman books started selling ten times as well as they did at the beginning, obviously, with the advent of the television show. And that ran for two or three years, and it was very successful. Now, you need a lot of patience in this business, I can tell you that, because I have to wait 23 to 25 years before each new resurgence. 
And I would only had I only had to wait until 1989 for the first Batman to be produced, the Batman the movie. Uh, there's an interesting anecdote though I'd like to relate. In 1969, after the TV show was a hit, uh, Robert Kennedy unfortunately was assassinated, as you all know. And I was out in Hollywood, and I decided to create a, a new concept of a nonviolent hero. It was called The Silent Gun, starring Lord Bridges at Paramount. They bought it. That's great. I said, he doesn't use the gun. He outwits the desperados, but he doesn't outshoot them and kill them. And ABC thought it was a wonderful idea, and they... Uh, put it on as a pilot and put it on, this, on uh, ABC and it had big ratings, tremendous. But then when it came to renew it for a TV series, what do you think? They said there, there isn't enough violence in it with a man that doesn't use a gun, we're going to cancel. Uh, they speak with forked tongue in Hollywood, it's par for the course. You got to stick to your guns, but believe me, it's not always so simple. And that was written up in the New York Times, the irony of it all, but they never used it. Back to the shooting and the killing. And uh, now in 1989, Batman wasn't easy to get produced. We saw, signed a contract in 1980. It only took nine long years to get Batman produced. Nobody in Hollywood knew what to do with it. They didn't want it. They said, well, we've done the TV show, and uh, we don't know what to do with this. And every director turned it down. Uh, I met a director here in the lobby yesterday, Ivan Reitman. He said, I saw it. I was offered it. But he said, the scripts were so bad, I don't know what to do with it. And he was right. When I came out in 83 to be consultant on the movie, uh, and it still wasn't done. I signed it in 80, 1980. Uh, the script, uh, they showed me a script by a famous Hollywood writer. And I'm the kind of guy, when you first arrive in Hollywood, I was here many years, I was here in the early years, but this time I came for the movie. Uh, he said, I don't know what, to, and it was a terrible script, but I didn't know what to, I, 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 didn't, I was ashamed to tell the producers of Warner Brothers, I don't like your script. So it delayed it another few years, and I told them then we would have gotten a better script and maybe we would have gotten off earlier. So I want to digress for one moment about, about Marilyn Monroe. Now, when I came out for the movie serials in 1949, I met Marilyn, and her name was Norma Jean then. Rather, in 1943, there were two serials. And we got talking and all, she said, I'm going to be a famous actress. And she spoke in this breathy voice, and I thought she either had to have asthma or this is the way she speaks, you know. I'm going to be a famous actress one day. <laughs> no, really, but she was, she was terrific, so beautiful, though. And I thought, my God, and I said, could we have dinner? Well, we went to the, to the, to the rap party of the Batman serial. Uh, it was a cheap rap party, believe me, because it was a quickie movie, 20-year minute serials every every Saturday afternoon. They shut the whole thing in a week. Thirteen serials, thirteen chapters. They were very successful, however, commercially. So anyway, I didn't see Marilyn again until 1949 when I came out for the second Batman serial. And uh, we I saw her wiggle one day on the 20th Century Fox lot, and I didn't recognize her face, but I recognized the derriere 
from the earlier years that she had a beautiful derriere. We got to talking again and we became friends and we went down to Santa Monica one sunny day and Marilyn took a bathing suit and I did some sketches of Marilyn and uh, from those sketches after I left Hollywood I went back to New York and I created Vicki Vale, the girl photographer from Marilyn and her image. So I thought that'd be an interesting anecdote to add here. Okay, back to the present. We had the Batman 1. Batman Returns came back in 1993. Now I only have to wait three years, not nine, because it's been proven. And in Hollywood, they only follow success, not failures. If you're a failure here, they, 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 they refuse to see you like you're some sort of a leopard. Uh, 1992 wasn't as big a hit because number one made 250 million and it was number one and then number two was number one also for the year but it only made 160 million 162 million domestically they call that a failure and now it brings us up to date with batman forever i guess you may have read some of the trades but it opened at the for the biggest weekend two weeks ago ever in hollywood history at 53 million dollars at beach jurassic park it's number one and it's very hot so I got a call saying, Bob, do you have any, any new villains? Because we ran out of most of my comic book villains. The Joker, Catwoman, the Riddler, Penguin, and, and Two-Face. So now I said, well, we had about 80 villains in the television show, but why don't we reprieve Jack Nicholson as the Joker? If you're dead in the movies, you know it's bringing him to life again. You know, it's no problem. And so we... Uh, I have some slides. Would you like to see some slides? Well, at any rate, I'll just close this with, uh, it's a big smash, and I, I went over most of the highlights of my career in a nutshell. And uh, if you want to know more, you can read my autobiography wherever it is. It's called Batman and Me. It tells about the girlfriends and some interesting stuff. Marilyn and a lot of people. <laughs> okay, my wife has a question. The new, so, oh yeah, on the heels of the Batman movie, uh, yeah, in 89, I created another superhero called Negative Man, and 20th Century Fox bought it, and uh, to do as a television series, make a pilot. So Hollywood has a strange thing, you're right, as I thought I should fill you in on this. When you bring them a concept, they'll buy it, they'll give you option money, and then they call in 10 writers to change whatever you wrote. They change it completely until you don't recognize it at all. I, I hate to disappoint you. But this is for me who I thought was famous with a track record. It doesn't matter who you are. They say, we loved it, but you know, it has to be changed this way and then we don't like it. And so they call in a girl writer who was much, knew as much about superheroes as the man on the moon. And she started to delete things and, and take things out and add her own two cents until I didn't recognize the concept. And then 20th Century Fox said, well, <laughs> we don't like her script and they wouldn't listen to me because I'm only the creator. So I just got out of the option. I said, forget about it. And that was the end of that. Uh, I'm just giving another anecdote how crazy Hollywood is. You know, you're never assured of anything out here. If they buy something, the first thing they try to do is change it. That's their, that's their habit. Okay, so now we get a few slides and we'll wrap it up.
don't even know how to work this thing. I know how to do the light. That's the easy part. You got it. You got to dust the light. sketch for a cover. I did it in 1989 for Batman, the first Batman movie, and I used my costume. Uh, and these are some of my sketches, and that's the early number one Batman in 1939. I made kind of a uh, conglomeration of the past and the present to show how he changed throughout the years. Well, I wish I looked like that again, Tyrone Power and me. I was 18 or so when I created the Batman, and I tell you, I, I, don't, I never like to look at that too often because I'd wish that I could remain forever. Forget the Batman. That's me and my grandson, Matthew, my daughter, Debbie, and my mother, dear mother, who's now deceased. And it's four generations of the Canes. Now, I want to show you how far you can go. It's in reverse, but it doesn't matter. It says, don't go by till you buy a pie. And uh, I was about 13, and I used to sell it to bakery shops for 10 cents a, a cartoon. And uh, I could have made them a little more handsome. No wonder I got re a lot of re rejects. The pie looks pretty good, though. There's Betty Boop, my tenor at Fleischer Studios. And... Uh, I worked on Betty Boop and Popeye. I did the yanking. An animated cartoon is interesting because you outline it in black and white on the front, and then they reverse it. It's on a celluloid cell, and it's painted by painters on the back side of it. Uh, this is in reverse, but doesn't matter. It's one of the early comic books in the mid-30s I was telling you about, and I had a feature in there. Uh, wow, wow magazine. They were pretty crude, those magazines at that time. This is one of my first comic strips that I ever created called Hiram, Hiram, Hiram Hick in New York. He was about a sheriff and uh, came to New York to fight crime. There was a television show later on with, uh, I forget the name of it now, anyway, Shades of Things to Come. Then I did spot cartoons. This one is a reverse called Life in the Raw. And that's what I meant by filling cartoons. I got $5 a page. That was in the mid-30s before I had a feature. The feature means a name feature like Batman or whatever. This is in reverse. Uh, it's called Peter Pup. It was one of my first early comic strips in the Disney style. And I was doing... I got $10 a page. I was starting to... Uh, move up a little bit. That's called Circus Comics, and uh, they're all coming out reverse. At any rate, 
There's another early comic book I worked for. I had a feature in that one. This is the one that's called Van Bragg. It's about a bunch of rich kids, two kids, Van Bragger and his, his sister Dimples, who caused all kinds of mayhem, sort of like the a modern Cats and Jama kids. And I love this. See, I wanted to be a cartoonist, basically, and draw this funny stuff, like Peanuts and this. I never wanted to do adventure, uh, illustrative drawing, but there was more money in it, so I switched over. But if I had my druthers, I'd rather be doing these kind of comics, so I would have liked to have been doing them when I was a young man. Uh, that's another strip I had, Side Streets of New York, in one of the books. It was taken after the movies, The Dead End Kids, with Humphrey Bogart. This is another fill-in comic page, Oscar the Gumshoe. This was a pantomime strip about a man who gets all dressed up and says, casting call, and he buys a suit, and he runs there all cleaned up, and they throw a pie in his face, and then that's the end of it. Okay, here it is, Leonardo da Vinci's flying machine. This is the original mock-up from da Vinci. It looks like a man on a sled, as you can see it, and the huge bat wings. This was exactly where I got the Batman from. And I told you about da Vinci's quote. Your bird shall have no other wings but the bat, but the um, model of the, of the bat. And I guess he scalloped the wings so it would be less air resistance. In fact, there was a plane in World War II copied from one of my bat planes where they scalloped the wings. I did these sketches from da Vinci when I was 13 years old. And there, I, I didn't know what to call him. I called him a bird man or an eagle man. And there's some da Vinci had a parachute uh, and the flying machine. So these were very crude when I was just a kid and I got the initial idea. This was the first Batman to appear in, in, the, in the book in 1939. It was very crude as you can see, but the idea was there. And as I went along, I improved it. There it is, it's Detective Comics. This one started the whole thing in 1939, Batman grabbing a gangster off a rooftop. This number one issue today, if you can get one, only about 12 around, it sold for 10 cents and 39. Today they go for 100 to $150,000. These books, that's what they sell for today. This is Batman's first appearance in the comic book in 1939 on a rooftop with the gangsters. And uh, I got $5 paid. <laughs> well, I did make the $800 a week, but it took about two years, so it wasn't too bad, was it? That's an early sketch of Batman with bat wings. Originally, I wanted him to look like a bat, but I changed it to a cape because it would be cumbersome him fighting with wings attached to his arms. These are some early sketches of Batman and Robin. Early covers of Batman and Robin in the first year or so. I did a, a feature in Adventure Comics about the same time called Clip Carson, Soldier of Fortune. That's Rusty and his pals with the Milton Kniff influence, which I did when I 
was drawing Batman, but I soon dropped them because Batman became, I, I was very busy with Batman and several books after a while. This is Milt Kniff, a dear friend of mine, whose who's drawings and uh, Steve Canyon and Terry and the Pirates were copied widely by all neophyte cartoonists. He was a great draftsman, and I learned my technique from him, switching from comics to adventure strips. There's another little fill-in called Oscar, uh, called Ginger Snap, and uh, it's a little bit like uh, Dennis the Menace. She was really a menace, causing all kinds of trouble. I had a feature in Action Comics. That's where Superman started. He's up on top in 1938. That's Clip Carson. That's the adventure strip I was talking about. Soldier of Fortune, I, mean, I kind of drew him in my image. I think most cartoonists uh, draw their strips in their own image. Uh, this was a uh, composite page in one of the early books with some of the villains I drew, and uh, there's the Joker in the lower right. Okay, here's one of the great villains I feel of all time, the Joker. And uh, I'll show you in a minute where I got him from. This was the first year, or the second year when he was created. And there he is, there's the Joker. Now, that's Conrad Veit, the German actor who played in a movie called The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. I read the book when I was a kid and I saw the movie. And I had a writer then, Bill Finger, who was an integral part of the Batman. He started with me, and he and I created the Joker together, and he brought me this photo from the book. He said, here's your new villain, the Joker. I thought it would look more like a playing card when I thought of the Joker, and I called Bill over, and then he brought this photo, and he said, this is what the Joker should look like. This is Batman when it started in the newspapers in 1943, that was a hot year. Uh, we had Batman as a movie serial. I went from the comic book to the newspapers. To me, the newspapers are really the big time, and, and the comic book is the Bush League, even to this day. And uh, I hate to say that, but it's the truth. But I switched from drawing the comic book at that time, and I drew the newspaper strip myself. That, that was the first week in introducing the bat cave and the bat signal. And uh, it was the first week of dailies, six daily strips. It's one of the early covers I did for Detective Comics. I used to do quite a bit of covers in the early days. Here's Batman in Arabic. It's in Arabia. Batman is all over the world in different different nationalities, and uh, I can't read it, obviously, but it's Ara Arabic. There's another one. This looks like uh, this Batman was probably in South America, and it's interpreted into the mother language, wherever it is. I got this from Walt Disney. I met him out here in the early days, and he gave me a cook's tour of Disneyland over at Bona Vista in, at Burbank, and he sent me these cells, and he signed it to, to Bob Kane, the Cinemaverse, uh, Walt Disney. He was a genius, Disney. I used to copy Mickey Mouse when I was a kid. 
Well, I, I was visiting Harry Hirschfeld. He was one of the great Toastmasters and the speakers in the United States, and he died. And uh, I went to visit him before he died, and he created a character called Abe Kabibble. I don't know if anyone remembers that, or A.B. the Agent, drawn especially in Gladly for Bob Kane, Batman's top guy, Harry Hirschfeld. I have a lot of original art home from all the famous cartoonists. That's me, Cool McCool and Friend. I'd had an animated cartoon in 1969. Everything came at once. This was sort of like Get Smart, and he was a bungling secret agent and ran on ABC for three years. So it's still in syndication. Then I did another thing called Courageous Cat. This is a story bought from Courageous Cat. And uh, it's Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse, really like Batman and Robin, only a cat and a mouse, and they drive a, a catmobile instead of a Batmobile. It's a very cute animated cartoon. It's still on the air in syndication. There he is. Everybody said, oh, it's Courageous Cat. And all the kids loved it. It was a great cartoon. I got this here. The spirit is a fellow artist, Will Eisner. When I was doing my autobiography, uh, I started with him way back out of high school uh, in WOW magazine that I mentioned earlier, and I was doing pages for him. He had his own publishing house at that time. But uh, I caught up with him. <laughs> Dandy was another newspaper strip, and uh, I don't know if anyone remembers that. There's me in Hollywood in 1966 with George Barris, who created the Batmobile, designed it for, for the Batman TV series. That's George Barris on the right, obviously. I'm on the left. Holy perils. Things will get worse before they get better. These were greeting cards by Hallmark. <laughs> of course, you know, the merchandising on Batman is tremendous. It's bigger than the movie money. Uh, right now, this year, it's going to be inundated all over the place with Batman toys and gimmicks and paraphernalia and sweatshirts and Batmobiles and the Riddler and the Joker and rather Riddler and Two-Face. And... This was the television show with Cesar Romero as the Joker on the left, Frank Gorshin as the Riddler, first Riddler, and Burgess Meredith, who was a charming, uh, not quite as villainous as the Batman, uh, as, as uh, Danny DeVito portrayal, and that's Julie Newmar's Catwoman, and they were wonderful. It was campy. I like them both. I like the television show, and I also like the movies. And there's some of the merchandising. It's all over the place, and this was from a catalog, and every time there's a resurgence, it has everything with the kitchen sink in it. And uh, it's an extremely lucrative field all over the world. It's me in the early, in 66, doing a television show where there was a blackout in Boston and they couldn't, the, the comics, in fact, the New Yorker one time, there was a blackout uh, where the, the newspaper comics could not be published. And so Mayor LaGuardia at that time used to read the comics to the, over the air. He loved comics, and he loved to chase fire engines. And that was Mayor LaGuardia, Little Flower. So I read it in Boston, Shades of Mayor LaGuardia, on the air, and there's a Batman page over there. There's, he, 
only leap into the mighty big time. That was in 66 with Adam West leaping on the Batman on the life cover for the new, new Batman TV series. And uh, you get your disappointments, however. You know, at that time I did Batman oil paintings and Life Magazine called me down and they took five hours of, of photographs of me and all my paintings. And when I opened up Life Cover, I eagerly awaited this issue. There was not one iota of anything they did in those five hours. They, they, they ran out of time or space. And I called the editor and I told him what he could do with, the, you know, with, the, with this issue. But I mean, you get these disappointments. They sound trivial today, but at the time, I was very slighted and very hurt. Okay, I had luncheon with President Eisenhower at the White House. Batman and Robin, well, in, in all honesty, I wasn't alone. I went with the Cartoonist Society of all the famous cartoonists. And Ike was a cartoon buff. He used to draw cartoons himself. And it says on the left, Mr. President, thank you for inviting Robin and, and I to the White House luncheon. For the Cartoonist Society were deeply honored. It's my pleasure to have Batman and Robin as my guests. I want to thank Bob Kane for attending and for bringing both of you. I know that there is less crime in Gotham City because of your dedicated crusader. To Ike with my gratitude for the honor. Well, here was a girlfriend of mine and I guess in 66, it's one of my oil paintings of Catwoman. And she posed in kind of a crude Catwoman outfit that she created and designed herself at home on a sewing machine. I, when I met Marilyn and I was watching the, them shoot the serials, I tried to reach Bing, but he was out of town on both occasions shooting. And so I had to wait many years later till Bing was kind of very much older, as you see. And he died two years after this picture was taken. But at least I, I caught up with him. He remembered the early days on the drawing. He said he had it framed at the Paramount Commissary. So I did catch him. Early Jerry Lewis and me. I knew Jerry quite well in the early days. I, the drawing I gave him of Batman and Robin and, and Jerry and Dean Martin. It's Groucho Marx. Uh, that's in 1975. And he, he liked to wear hats. I wore a funny hat and he wore a fireman's hat. And he's holding a monkey. And I was going to do an animated cartoon on him, so while living in Vegas, I flew to Hollywood and I met him. They wanted $100,000 in front. Uh, I didn't feel like giving him 100000 so it fell through. There's me. That's not Harpo. That's me with Harpo's wig on. And there's Groucho with another funny hat. He had some funny anecdotes to tell. Very funny man. Even then he had a great sense of humor. Sammy Davis Jr. and a great talent. I met him down Florida in the early days. And I used to like to hobnob with all the celebrities and go to their shows and they'd invite me backstage. And the Silla Thrill. Jim Carrey was so much fun on the set. He's a real humble guy and he deserves all the success he's getting. Because he was very poor for most of his youth, you know. He starved to death practically. In 15 years, he was doing stand-up comedy. Nobody wanted him. And in 19, a uh, year and a half ago, or two years ago, he did uh, Pet Detective. 
and, and it, it earned about $80 million, and he got $250,000 only for the shoot. Then he did the mask for 350000 that became a huge hit. And for Batman, he got $5 million. And now he's been offered $20 million for his next movie. And I wish him all the luck he has, because he deserves it, and he worked very hard. So anything can happen. From nowhere, you can become successful overnight. That's Joe Franklin. He had a big television show in New York, reading the Batman. Jimmy Durante, he was such a sweet man. And he said something like, I would like to be the Batman. He was a great guy. Don Rickles. All I could say is Don Rickles. That's Don Rickles. He's kind of a mean-spirited guy. I'm only kidding, Don, but you are. But uh, <laughs> that's how he talks, you know. Anyway, there's Marilyn. Those are the sketches I mentioned earlier. Of, I had some photos with her, but in my travels they got waylaid. I guess friends would come up and steal them, cut me out and keep her. At any rate, that was down at Santa Monica when I, the Batman serial in 1948 or 9, and uh, I, I made these sketches of her. And her contract was just dropped by Columbia Studios that time, and she was very disheartened, and she didn't think she'd get anywhere. But she had something. I thought she could become somebody big in the, in, in the uh, movies, and she finally did, of course. She was very neurotic, though. She had a lot of neuroses, a lot of angst. Here's a Batman painting I did. When I, too bad it's not in color. And uh, I, I drew that for the movie, but they redesigned it their way. For the 89 movie with Jack Nicholson. There's a, there's a, a lithograph I drew, I painted, of Jack and, and Michael Keaton and the Batmobile. And those are lithos that we sold at that time in 89. It's, they sold out, they were a big sale. That was a commemorative one I did in 1950, uh, 1989. And uh, it shows early Robin, early Batman, early Batmobile, and my three great villains, Catwoman, Penguin, and the Joker. And that was a lithograph I also did in 89. And they were sold as a pair. And uh, beautiful, isn't it? I, I guess that about sums it up. Thank you very much. God bless you. If I had to do it all over again, I would. I'm still going strong. I'm still doing lithographs, and now I'm writing movie scripts. Elizabeth and I just finished a script called Silver Fox. It's a new superhero that we intend to produce shortly. And uh, the idea is never stop working and just keep creative. If you're creative, it's like breathing in and out. You've got to keep doing it or you die. And you're never too old to create. Everyone, Picasso paint, painted till he was in his 90s. You never feel old when you're creative. You're only old when you stop creating and that's when you die inside. So whatever, the, whatever your dreams are, remember what I told you earlier and what Goethe said, Follow your dreams. God bless you all.
And Elizabeth, Elizabeth was afraid my wife would be reading from the little notes I put down. And I didn't disappoint you, did I? It all comes back. I tell you, unfortunately, I have to make an announcement. Is this still on? I had eye surgery a week ago on my right eye, as Elizabeth and I know. I have a very strained eye, and unfortunately, I just cannot sign any books today. If you do one, it's a cataract surgery, and it's very tender. I'm using drops four times a day. If I sign one book, you've got to sign them all. And I hate to disappoint anybody, and I generally would love to sign a book for everybody, or a drawing, or an autograph, but I'm tired, I'm still run down from it, and please forgive me. And, and I have to skip questions and answers, because I'm really fatigued, so just bear with me.
wanted to hit.